Well, if you've been with us for any length of time, then you know we've been in a series in the book of Acts. And Acts has been a lot of fun uh, where, where we explored really big narratives. Um, next week, we're going to explore, begin exploring the book of Philippians. So a letter written to the church of Philippi. And it's going to really require us and help us to slow down and just cover short passages of Scripture and dive deep there. And so I'm really looking forward to that time together. Uh, we'll begin that series next week. But this morning, I have a question for us. Where is God in this broken world? It doesn't sit right when we see acts of injustice happening around us, and it shouldn't. And we long for wrongs to be made right. We long for the innocent to be protected. We celebrate the orphan adopted, the sex trafficked rescued. We applaud the efforts of those who have courage to step into dark places, who are willing to give up their own comfort and safety in order to help others and get in the way of evil. And so when tragedies like war or earthquakes or a pandemic hit, we might wonder, where's God? Where is God in this broken world? Is he indifferent? Is he unwilling? Is he unable to do something? So how does Christianity answer this honest question? It's an honest question. How does Christianity answer it? And there are a lot of angles, there are a lot of ways that we could come at this. We have 30 minutes. <laughs> but here's, here's what I believe we need to at least acknowledge. Number one, we live in a broken world. Let's, let's acknowledge that. If we're going to address this question and answer this question, we have to first acknowledge that we live in a broken world. The atrocities of this world are hard to face, whether it's wars or earthquakes or a pandemic. Brokenness is everywhere. We read about it on the news every day. We experience it in our lives every day. The Bible goes on to talk about, and we'll, we'll read it in a few minutes, that the earth creation itself is groaning. It's a great description of what's happening, and we weep along with it. Our temptation, though, can be to put God on trial, to demand answers from him and question his goodness and his love, his authority and his strength. What we're really doing is questioning his character. When things aren't going our way or when we've been hurt, God's justice, God's presence, God's goodness and his love are often the things that we first attack. And so in a world of pain and sorrow, in a world of grief and fear, we might wonder, God, where are you? You, you might be wondering that today, this morning. You might be walking through something that so breaks your heart. You're so grieved by it. It's so heavy. Maybe you've been carrying it for a while. All of us have been going through stuff. But maybe you've come in here especially with a heavy load, and you're wondering, God, where are you? The Bible presents us with an answer to how the world got so broken, how the world got so jacked up. It does, it provides an answer. The story of sin entering the scene, staining and corrupting and distorting and twisting and ultimately leading mankind to live in distrust of God's love and goodness is laid out in the first few chapters of Genesis. And it's told, it's communicated in a, a, very, a beautiful way an artistic way, a succinct way. It's historical and it's memorable. And we're not going to read it. I encourage you to read it on your own, especially Genesis 3. But the whole heart of the matter is 
that mankind, humankind was believing the lie that God doesn't have our best interests at heart, that he's withholding what we would be better off having. And they made a decision to live out from under his loving rule. They made a decision. Self-sufficiency, self-rule, self-governance, autonomy. And that has been the wrestling match from Genesis 3 on. The sin, the disobedience, the rebellion against God and his rule, the brokenness that entered the world on that day was the unraveling of a deep relationship with the living God and the unraveling of the fabric of creation itself. We live in a broken world and we know how it got broken. Number two, the God of the Bible is just and good. The God of the Bible. I'm not talking about a generic deity. I'm talking about the God of the Bible. It's, it's important for us to, to talk that way. We live in a very relativistic culture where the word God is so generic. We, we might not know what the person is, how that person is understanding what we're saying. When we speak of God, we're speaking of the God of the Bible, or at least, at least a Christian should be speaking of the God of the Bible. And what we learn from Scripture is that the God of the Bible is just and he's good. Look with me, please, in Psalm 89. We're going to dip into just a a few verses here this morning. Psalm 89, beginning in verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, and who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. We'll pause there. But I want to read verse 14 again because this is really going to be emphasized over the next few minutes. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And what we learn here about the God of the Bible in, in these few short verses is that God's justice, his righteousness and justice is the foundation of his throne. It's the foundation of who he is. It's his character. It's the very foundation of his rule and you can't help but notice in scripture that God is always upholding his justice his righteousness he's always displaying his justice that the entire storyline of the Bible involves a holy God a just God taking on the evil and sin and injustices of this world and turning it all on its head redeeming restoring renewing rescuing confronting conquering and one day removing the effects of that historical fall. One day removing the stain of sin. One day removing the presence of evil forever. And so God's justice, God's justice, it's meant to be a comfort to us today. My prayer for you, church, my prayer for us is that God's justice would become a comfort to us if it, if it isn't. And that if we've moved away from it, that we've moved towards it and see how much of a comfort really it can be in the midst of injustice and brokenness. Now, I want to walk through a couple passages, and I don't even want you to turn there. I just want you to listen. I think it'll be up here on the screen. But in Exodus chapter 3, Moses has been running from God. He's been running from God. 
He tried to do it his way back in Egypt. He killed an Egyptian. He didn't like how the Egyptians were treating the Israelites. He killed an Egyptian, uh, and, and, and then he, it was found out that he had done so, and so he, he booked it. And this is years down the road where he's just, he's been running. And the Lord appears to him, strangely, in this burning bush that isn't consumed by the flames. And the Lord speaks to Moses. And this is what it says. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver or rescue them. Look what he says. I have seen the affliction. I have heard their cries. I know their sufferings. Isn't that what we need to know when we're walking through difficult seasons, walking through hard times? Lord, Lord, do you see it? Do you know what's going on? It's, It's true for me. I need to know that he knows. And here, God graciously, lovingly tells Moses, I I see it. Moses, I see the affliction of my people. I'm not unaware. I hear their cry. I know their suffering. Years ago, um, Valerie was in the hospital. Many of you know this about us, but she has a, a tumor in her brain stem that almost took her life when we were just married. Six months into our marriage, she almost died from it. And then, about a year and a half later, she almost died again from it. It's still there. It's not cancerous. Uh, they had to go in and, and put a shunt to bypass her brain fluid because her brain fluid was filling her ventricles and it had nowhere to drain because of this tumor. So she was in a, a coma. She was intubated. It was very scary, very scary. Uh, we're newly married. I didn't know what was going on. Didn't know how she was going to come through. She, she, she could have died. And I, I remember being in the hospital and I was just in the bathroom and I had just been crying, just, Lord, I don't like what's going on. I'm scared. I, what's, and, and I had a PDA. Do you guys remember those? <laughs> you had to sync them with your computer. <laughs> it's, it's taking us back now. Um, and I hadn't, I hadn't synced it in a while because I'd been at the hospital, but I, I, remember, I, re, I read the devotion, the devotional that was on there, a Charles Spurgeon devotional. And this is the passage that came up. And it's, it's as if the Lord was just saying to me, Darren, I see it. I know your sorrow. I see what's taking place with Valerie. I needed to hear it. Maybe you need to hear it this morning. God is not unaware of your circumstances. God is not indifferent to what you're facing. I know it feels that way sometimes. I love what he says to Moses here. Not only does he see and hear and know, it's like he then rolls up his sleeves and he says, and I've come down to deliver. I've come down to rescue them. A little foreshadow of what we find happening in, through Christ Jesus, and, and we'll get to that. Also, Psalm 139 brings great comfort to us when we read, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. 
And then in Hebrews 4, verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked or uncovered and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All right, these passages are very sobering. They're sobering. The Lord sees all. He knows all. There's nothing that we can do that's like private, that he's unaware of. So that's sobering, but it's also comforting. God is with us, and he knows our sorrows. Every problem we face, every anxiety we feel, every fear that we hold, God knows it all. And I'm not saying that there is an easy answer to the brokenness and suffering and evil and pain that you're facing or that we experience in this world. There's no easy fix to this suffering. But the truth remains that he knows, that he sees, that he hears, that he's, he's come down to do something about it. And the very foundation of his throne is justice and righteousness and love goes before him. We're talking about the God of the Bible. This is who he is. And these are the things we hold on to. So let's acknowledge, yes, the world is broken, but the God of the Bible is just and he is good. And finally, number three, God's answer to evil and suffering, God's answer to this brokenness is his son, Jesus. I don't say that flippantly. Jesus was born into poverty. Jesus was despised and rejected. He knew what it was like to suffer wrongly. He was mocked. He was beaten. Jesus was murdered. He lived under a very oppressive government. He went on to endure a darkness that none of us can really imagine. The weight of sin, alone on the cross, where he lost all sense of the Father's presence. That was a deep, deep darkness that we, we really don't even have a clue how it felt. Jesus entered our sin-sick world, not only to fight evil, but to remove it. And not only to confront it, but to destroy it. But how can he do this when our sin-sick hearts are the place it all began? So God's justice should be a comfort. He's going to do something about injustice. But it's also a problem. It's also a problem for those who have sinned against a holy God. So what's the remedy here? Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 3. This is where the gospel is held high. This is where the gospel becomes more beautiful. I, I will say this, church. If there was one page in the Bible, if, if I was being, like, arrested and put away for the rest of my life, and, and, but I had time to rip out one page in the Bible, ball it up, hide it under my tongue, so that later in, in prison, I could like cough it up and lay it out and just delight in it, this, this is the page I would rip out. I'm, I'm not even joking. This, this is the page, and this is the paragraph that I would swim in. Romans 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. You had to pause there and say, how is this possible? 
He goes on to answer the how. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, this atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's going on here? A whole lot is going on here. But did you notice the concern that Paul has for God's righteousness, for his justice to be upheld? If, if God were to compromise his justice, his righteousness, he wouldn't be the God of the Bible. He wouldn't be worthy of our praise. He's holy. God can't just uh, ignore our sin and sweep it under the, the carpet of heaven. That's not how it works. It has to be dealt with. How? Will God remain just, righteous, and holy in all his ways and justify sinners? How? It's through the cross of Christ. It's through the redeeming work of Jesus. Here we see in these verses, Romans 3, the greatest injustice of all becomes in one moment the clearest demonstration of God's infinite justice. When Christ Jesus became sin for us, God the Father's just punishment is poured out on Jesus instead of you and I. Just, just think about that. That's what propitiation is all about. The pouring out of wrath deserved, of divine punishment deserved on our sin. But that Jesus became sin for us. He took our place. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves, living a perfect life. But then he died a substitutionary death in our place receiving the punishment that we deserve so that there's no punishment left for us. So God remains just, righteous in all his ways, and we can be justified. It's breathtaking. The just God of all, saving unjust sinners and remaining just the entire time. Paul was concerned that God remained just. He's also concerned that sinners, those who are unjust, find justification in Jesus. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleansing, forgiveness of sins, it's found in Jesus. But this, church, this is not just um, so that we can have a ticket to heaven. So that we can just say, okay, I, I believe in Jesus. I've been cleansed of my sins. I'll put that in my pocket and I'm gonna go live on my life however I want, just kind of, that, that's, not, that's not the purpose. That's not what this is about. This isn't just about dying and going to heaven. There's so much more to it. The biblical view of things is resurrection and restoration. The biblical view of things is a putting back of things the way they were originally designed to be. One author says, every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make our glory and joy even greater. God will right every wrong. God will right every wrong. He's just and he's righteous. And steadfast love goes before him. God will right every wrong. One day, even death itself, our final enemy, will be put under his feet. And so we are called here and now to entrust our lives to the one who judges justly, 
to follow in the footsteps of Jesus this way because 1 Peter chapter 2 actually describes this in verse 23 that Jesus himself entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. When he was, when he was reviled, when, when he was, um, when he was uh, under trial, this unjust trial, he was like a lamb. He didn't even open up his mouth, not once. He entrusted the whole situation to the one who sees, to the one who knows, to the one who is just. We are called to do the same thing to entrust our lives, to entrust our circumstances, knowing that God is just, that he will right every wrong. We don't even have to understand how that's going to happen or how that will come about. Ultimately, we know it's going to happen through the redeeming work of Christ Jesus. In the Lord of the Rings, Sam the Hobbit discovers that his friend Gandalf uh, was not dead. He wasn't dead. And he cries out, I thought you were dead! (laughs) But then again, I thought I was dead. (laughs) He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? That was his question. And Christianity's answer is, yeah. Yes, it is. Our future is not some immaterial paradise where we're going to be floating on a cloud somewhere, stroking a harp, wearing some wings. That is not our future. Our future is new creation. And the new creation has begun already in Christ Jesus. By faith in Jesus, uh, Paul describes it to the Corinthians this way, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Your new creations in Christ Jesus. And so one day we know there will be a new heavens and a new earth restoration, a putting back of things the way they were designed to be. And this has begun Here and now, through faith in Jesus, we have eternal life. And really, that language is more like age-to-come life, experienced here and now in the present by faith in Jesus. I have a slide that might help uh, as we walk through this. I want you you to see this because I believe here, um, as we hold on to these truths that are found in the gospel, there is hope and grace and peace and strength to come from it. So here in this present age where we experience injustice and oppression and suffering and evil of all kinds and misery and pain, we're in the present age and we can all admit, yep, we're feeling it. And one day we're going to die. But in the age to come, there's rescue and restoration and healing and wholeness, wrongs made right. But the truth is we live in the overlap Through Christ Jesus, we have experienced the kingdom now, and we long for the kingdom to come. We've experienced new creation now in Christ Jesus, restored relationship with the living God, peace, reconciliation, wholeness. But we also long for what will be. And so we wait by faith, holding on to that new creation life that has been found in Jesus and what's guaranteed in light of it. Look at Romans chapter 8. In verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present age, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's just pause there and think about what will be.
when every tear is wiped away from our eyes, when sin is eradicated, when Jesus returns in his beauty and glory, what will be? Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so we wait. Church, we wait. And here it, it describes life as being in the pains of childbirth. We know there's something glorious to come. There's hope in the midst of the pain. Years ago, I, I wrote a song about circumstances I was facing, and um, the lyrics, part of them go like this. I'm tired of all the struggles. I'm tired of all the stress. I'm tired of all the pain you feel. I'm tired of you losing rest. Sorrow fills my heart like a drug, and it leaves me face to face with your pain. But there's hope beyond this frustrating mess. There's hope beyond this weary song. And so I'll stand up with all creation and I will groan until the kingdom comes. I wrote it because a family member of mine was going through something and broke my heart. Filled me with great, deep, deep sorrow. It's the last thing I wanted for this person. It was hard to see how any good could come from it, and it, it wasn't my job to figure that out. And so I groaned with creation, and I wept, I wept, and I held on to the hope of what will be. You know, Jesus has given us his spirit, the spirit, the comforter, and Jesus is returning in might and power to restore this broken world. He's coming to unleash his justice on evil. He's coming to wipe away every tear from the eyes of those who call him Savior. And the cross of Jesus is a reminder that he is anything but indifferent to our pain. And the resurrection is a guarantee of the restoration that awaits us. We are the first fruits We've experienced new life in Christ Jesus. Oh, what will be? I want to say it again. The cross of Jesus is a reminder that he is anything but indifferent to our pain. Jesus, he stepped into space and time and became what we are. He took on flesh. Jesus, he experienced the darkness of living under an oppressive regime. Jesus, mocked. Jesus, poor. Jesus, experiencing the weight of, of sin. Jesus, enduring and walking through death itself. Jesus. The cross of Jesus is a reminder that he is anything but indifferent to our pain. And his resurrection is a guarantee of the, res of the restoration that awaits us. And so we move forward. 
with tears. Sometimes we move forward with groaning. Sometimes the groaning is louder than the songs of hope, and that's okay. But in the midst of it all, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and this is not an escapist mentality. No, this is rest. This is hope. This is peace. And the Bible doesn't answer every question about suffering and evil. Let's just admit that. But it most definitely doesn't ignore it. And I'm learning that just because I can't see good reasons why something is happening, just because something might appear pointless, doesn't mean that it must be pointless. And I'm learning that God doesn't owe me answers. He doesn't owe me explanations to everything I want to know. And I'm learning that it's okay to share my frustration with him. It's very healthy to do so. He can take it. And I'm learning to grieve and to groan. And I'm learning to rejoice and to find joy in the midst of devastation and circumstances. I trust you're doing the same. It's important in this season that we're in that we do this together. And that we know that Jesus is God's answer. Jesus is God's answer. And in answering that way, he has given us more than we could have ever hoped. Church, when we see acts of injustice happening around us and we're disturbed, when we long for wrongs to be made right, when we long for the innocent to be protected, when we celebrate uh, the orphan finding a home or the sex trafficked rescued, when we, when we do those things, we are reflecting our creator. When we display the courage to step into dark places, when we're willing to sacrifice our own comfort and safety, it's, a, it's an echo. It's an echo of the divine rescue that's already taken place in Jesus. And so no amount of tears, no amount of fear, no amount of anxiety or pain or suffering can change what Jesus, what his rescue accomplished and what it guarantees. We began by asking, is God indifferent? Is he unwilling? Is he unable? It's a fair question. Jesus is proof that he is anything but indifferent. Jesus is proof that he is anything but unwilling. He's proof that he is anything but unable. God will right every wrong. We can entrust our lives, our circumstances, to the one who judges justly. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you hear, that you see, that you know. We thank you that you have come down to do something about our brokenness. And that in the person of Jesus, we find hope and rescue in this present age and in the one to come. We thank you, Lord, that you remain just and you justify sinners like us. And we're humbled by that truth. We thank you that you've made a way for us to, by faith, find rescue and redemption, new creation, age to come life, here and now, in the midst of the brokenness. Would you help us, Lord, as a church community? Would you help us to come alongside others who are experiencing this brokenness? And they're grieving, and they have no hope. Or maybe they've lost sight of the hope that is found in you. 
Would you help us to come alongside them and acknowledge that, yes, this world is broken, but to also show them who you are, your character, your ways, and show them how, Lord, you have answered this brokenness in the person of your son. We thank you, Lord.